Jace here. Before the episode, everybody, I just wanted to remind you all that a Los Angeles Comic-Con is coming up very, very soon. It's going to be taking place the first weekend of December, Friday, December 2nd through December 4th. It's at the Los Angeles Convention Center in downtown LA. This is a fantastic show. There's tons of great cosplay, maybe one of the best cosplay shows outside of San Diego that there is. Uh, this is going to be their biggest year ever, right before Christmas. Great place to go to get uh, gifts for all the people that love comics and uh, anime and toys and crafts and that sort of thing. Huge artist alley. And one of the best things about Los Angeles Comic-Con is the main stage where they have most of the panels, the, the panels with the big stars that you want to see. They all happen on the main stage on the main floor. So you don't miss out on any of those cool panels that you want to go see. And, and you know, while you're shopping, you can be listening. It, it's loud. Uh, you can hear it. The panels that are going to be on the main stage include a Jimmy Neutron 20th anniversary and live script reading with a lot of the cast of Jimmy Neutron. Uh, I love that show back in the day. There's also going to be a Lord of the Rings panel with Sean Astin and Elijah Wood talking about behind the scenes, um, of Lord of the Rings, that trilogy that, that we all loved. Uh, the Boys is going to have uh, a panel there with several of, uh, at least three of the, the cast of The Boys are going to be there. Um, so that's really cool. Also, The Mandalorian is going to have a, a couple of the actors talking about that show. There's a big reunion for The Sandlot, classic film from the 90s. That's going to be on the main stage. And then finally, The Umbrella Academy is also going to be having a uh, panel on the uh, main stage, along with a lot of other guests that are going to be there. Uh, I think Sumi Luau from the uh, Shang-Chi movie is going to be there. LeVar Burton, Steve Burns from Blue's Clues. So it's a real who's who of talent that are going to be there. I highly recommend the show. It's one of my favorite shows of the year. Um, You know, William Shatner, Will Wheaton, uh, in addition to the people I talked about, Charlie Hunnam from Sons of Anarchy is going to be there. Uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, who many of you know from Saved by the Bell, Amy Jo Johnson from uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So it's a it's a huge list of guests, and that's not it. We haven't even talked about the comic guests: uh, Greg Capullo, Scott Snyder, Ryan Otley. Uh, the list goes on and on. There's going to be so many great people there. I'm going to be there. Um, I'll have swag with me to give away as always. So again, really recommend you guys uh, check it out. There's still badges available. Remember, it's December 2nd through the 4th, so Friday through Sunday. Uh, Friday's uh, a little bit of an abbreviated day. It goes from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Saturday from 9.30 to 7, and then Sunday from 9.30 to 5. So as I said, great show, highly recommended. Hope to see you all there. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is your weekly DC Spotlight. Apologies, Rocky was unable to join me. I'm really disappointed, too, because there's um, some really interesting titles out this week, both in a good way and a bad way. So I was kind of curious what his thoughts on some of them were. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I'll just have to talk to him about it when I get a chance, but uh, kind of a, a little bit of a shorter week in a lot of ways, or, or maybe I should say a smaller week for DC. You know, a lot of times when there's that extra release date in a month, uh, I suppose you'll say that there is, um, you know, that fifth week, a lot of times you fill it up with annuals or specials or anthologies. And that's, that's certainly the case with DC this week. There's an extra or a fifth Tuesday and a fifth Wednesday. So I kind of expect the same from Marvel tomorrow. So with that being said, nine books to talk about annuals, anthologies. I think there's only maybe one regular issue, maybe two regular issues. So anyway, let's go ahead and dive right in. First book I'm going to talk about is Superman Kal-El Returns Special. 
there's several stories in here. Um, and Superman's been back for a while, so it doesn't necessarily feel like this is super topical. Um, but again, it, it is an anthology focusing on uh, Superman. The first story is Superman and Batman teaming up. It's written by Mark Wade. The art is by Clayton Henry. Colors are by Marcelo Maiello. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, and basically, it sort of plays out in, in present time, I guess you'll say. And it gives some context for Mark Wade's World's Finest run. We, we sort of know that that's been taking place in the past, but this really makes you realize that it is. Um, there is somebody who is taking um, some insanity, some riots, some social unrest, if you will, from the past and bring it into the present in Gotham. And Superman is shows up in Gotham. Hey, I know this is your turf. You probably don't want my help. Uh, but they end up fighting against this guy. And he's like some kind of musical note chaos guy. I I don't know. Um, I, I'd never heard of him before, but his name's Mr. Nobody. Um, you know, Mark Wade has a pretty big encyclopedic knowledge of the DC universe. So he probably pulled him out of uh, mothball. So it was an interesting enough story. I didn't really feel like anything special, to be honest. Um, but it did more than anything show the friendship that Clark and uh, Bruce have. So I appreciated that. Second story was called uh, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen in friend in need written by Cena Grace art is by Dean Haspel colors by Trish Mulvihill letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, keep in mind, Dean Haspel is a cartoonist, not necessarily a comic artist. So uh, it's a little bit stylized. And I thought it was a really good story from Cena. Uh, it really showcases the relationship that Clark and Jimmy have, which is, in my mind, the best thing about th these two. They're they're always friends. They're they always care about each other. And Jimmy is such a great POV character for us. Um, so I really appreciated how much he he was really happy that that Clark was back. He, he knew the importance of it. You know, he talked a lot about, Hey, you know, just by being here, you elevate everybody on this planet. So again, um, fantastic, fantastic job by Cena. Uh, and the Dean Haspel art is, is uh, suitably bright and, and fun. Um, so uh, the next story is a team up with John and Clark it's called Distractions, written by Marv Wolfman, actually. Uh, art is by Jack Herbert, and art is absolutely fantastic. Herbert's quickly becoming one of my favorite artists. Colors are by Alex Quermus and letters by Dave Sharp. Being that it's kind of an old-school story for, for, from Marv Wolfman, it's really about Clark teaching John that no matter how many steps you think you're ahead of Luther, that he's, you know, he's one of the smartest guys. You can't underestimate him, basically. So... John does, in a way, turn the tables. He kind of um, listens to his dad, but with that sort of hubris of youth, like, yeah, dad, yeah. Luther thinks he has one over on me, but really, I have one over on him. And then come to find out, yeah, he wasn't, John wasn't as far ahead of Luther in his thinking as he, he thought he was. But like I said, in the end, he did take his father's advice and was able to not necessarily outsmart Luther, but at least kind of catch up to where he he is by using the one thing that um, always seems to be the downfall of Lex Luthor, and that's his own ego. Um, next up is Home, written by Alex Segura. Art is by Fico Asio. Colors by Lee Luffridge. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, Fico Asio, another really talented artist. Very dynamic art. And this one's all about Clark going back to the Hall of Justice for the first time and how excited the other Justice League Justice Leaguers are that he's there, especially Naomi, and they kind of do a walk through the league, and they're, they're looking at a lot of the mementos, the trophies, and uh, it, it just shows Clark how important it is that he's he's back um, and not to take his friends for granted. So I enjoyed that, and, and that one ends with Clark being teleported away, which is um, right before... Uh, Superman's are uh, Justice League 75. So th that kind of tells you that this anthology is really late in a, in a lot of ways. So that's how it all finishes up. That's uh, the final story. So it was okay. Um, 
these are good Superman stories in terms of kind of stand, standing alone and reminding us who Superman is as a character and kind of getting a good feel. Um, but nothing groundbreaking here, nothing that kind of really blew me away or anything. Uh, next up, so this is an interesting anthology, the uh, Nubia Justice League special number one. There are several stories in here, but what's interesting is how they tie them all together with Nubia mis- uh, visiting the Justice League, rather. And we know that Hippolyta was most recently a member of the Justice League, and now it seems that Nubia herself is going to be joining in whatever iteration of the Justice League we're going to have once um, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths is uh, is over. So it is Nubia's 50th anniversary. So it's kind of appropriate in my mind that she would be uh, joining the Justice League. She is very uh, capable in a lot of ways. So um, the first story has her in Gotham City. Uh, it's written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. M&K in the Halipan does the art, Tamara Bonvalon on colors, Pat Brussel on letters. Um, she meets up with Green Arrow and Black Canary there. They fight Firefly, and it's uh, the first chance that Nubia has to kind of fight along some of these Justice Leaguers, and they really are impressed. Green Arrow and Black Canary really fall in love with Nubia very quickly as she dispatches Firefly, which makes sense being that she's such a formidable fighter and Green Arrow and Black Canary are, are kind of street level characters. So uh, once they're done fighting, they head over to justice, the justice, the hall of justice, if I can get that word out. And Nubia says, yeah, she's been looking for Diana. She's been waiting for Diana to show back up. Again, this takes place in the past before justice league 75. So this is the, you know, when Diana had returned from, um, jumping through all those mythological um, realms, if you were. But Black Adam expresses some reservations, doesn't necessarily believe that Nubia is just there waiting for Diana, which is kind of interesting that he thinks there's uh, something else going on. So that's kind of the first part of the story. And then the second part of the story, they hear that there's something going on in Metropolis. And so they head over to Metropolis. This time, Nubia is teamed up with Black Adam and Martian Manhunter, and they take on the parasite. So very similar to the first part of the story in that um, this time it's Martian Manhunter and Black Adam that get a chance to see how formidable a fighter uh, Nubia is. So um, again, pretty interesting to see that second part of the story and have Nubia's thoughts because Nubia is kind of narrating this in a lot of ways about how different Metropolis is uh, from Gotham City. So once that battle's done with the Parasite, they head back once again to uh, the Hall of Justice and uh, Aquaman and uh, and Hawkgirl show up. Aquaman, again, uh, very excited to meet Nubia, especially being that she's royalty. He was previously the King of Atlantis. So they have some interesting dialogue about that. Um, and they're all sort of hanging out. And that's when someone first broaches the subject of if Nubia is going, going to join the Justice League. And she's, she kind of plays it off and doesn't really give a, a straight answer. And uh, right then is when Batman, Wonder Woman, and Superman show up. So she's sort of let off the hook in a lot of ways. And Batman comes right out and asks her. And, and uh, Superman's like, uh, you know, you don't exactly have uh, tact, if you will, Bruce. But Nubia talks about... Uh, you know, what an honor it would be for her to, to join the league and seems like she might uh, accept the invitation, but before she can, um, there's a call from star star city, um, on the justice league, uh, warning system, if you will. And they all fly off, uh, heading toward star city to take on whatever disasters going on. Um, and apparently Nubia has agreed to join them because she's kind of leading them all saying justice league to arms. Um, and talking about how she's got to believe in herself and being a part of man's world is, is something she needs to experience. So it ends saying only the beginning, um, of this, this first story. So again, I have to wonder, is this the justice league we're going to get going forward? Because the last page is somewhat of a, 
a montage piece. And it, it's a, if this is the league that we get, it's a big league. And I can't ever remember there being two Amazons on the league at the same time, but we've got Martian Manhunter, Black Canary, Wonder Woman, Black Adam, Superman, Nubia, Batman, Aquaman, Hawkgirl, and uh, Green Arrow. So 10 members. Um, so I'm not sure who's writing that, if that's really the case or who's drawing it. First of all, who's ever drawing it? That's a big lift. Uh, it's also a challenge for the writer because you got to give everybody real estate on the page. So yeah, going to be interesting to see if, if that's the case. Uh, second story in the anthology is Nubia just kind of out on the streets uh, of Chicago, taking in the sights, um, trying to, again, fit into man's world. And um, it's kind of a generic story in a, in a lot of ways. There's a giant octopus that shows up and attacks this like amusement park and, Nubia uses restraint and realizes that it's not this giant octopus's fault that it was taken out of its home. Um, and so she does return it to the water and saves everybody. So um, the story is called I Am Nubia. It's written by Stephanie Williams, who you know has worked a lot on Nubia over the last year. So she's certainly somebody who understands Nubia as a character. Uh, the art's by Aletha Martinez. Mark Morales does inks. Alex Gormas on colors. Becca Carey on letters. So this is kind of familiar in a lot of ways. And um, not sure what this means in terms of any kind of solo Nubia content going forward. Because, again, it does seem like she's going to be joining the Justice League. So if you're a Nubia fan, this is probably a lot of fun seeing her interact with Justice League members. And then you get a little bit of um, the kind of same aesthetic with storytelling with the, the second story, which is much shorter. Um, but again, not sure what it what it means for the future of Nubia. If she's really going to be a member of the Justice League, I guess we'll see. Uh, up next, Blue Beetle Graduation Day, number one, written by Josh Trujillo. Adrian Gutierrez is the artist. Will Quintana on colors. Lucas Gattoni does the letters. Um, I'm not really a big... I haven't read a lot of the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle. Um, Ted Cord's the Blue Beetle that I prefer. Um, I, I honestly just don't know that much about the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle, even though I read his new 52 series, at least the first four or five issues. But honestly, it wasn't very memorable because I don't I don't remember it. And uh, I'm not even exactly sure what his powers are. I know that the Scarab is kind of this alien armor that attached to him. And somehow sometimes it can sort of take over. Um, the, he has something to do with the alien race called the reach um but this is written uh, by a latino writer josh trujillo and technically it's a very good comic the art is gorgeous uh it's really really awesome dynamic art um but it does sort of lean into kind of um these latin ideas of uh or themes of really strong family and i don't want to say machismo but um, I, I don't know. I, I just felt that the, the adults in the story were very heavy handed, um, when dealing with, with Jaime, which I can speak from experience is sort of very Hispanic in, in a lot of ways. So, um, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm really curious as part of, part of why I was hoping Rocky would be here. But I also need to talk to some uh, some other readers I know who uh, are fans of Blue Beetle and get and get their impression on this because um, I don't know it just it felt a little off to me. I mean, basically the story is Jaime's graduating from high school, but he's not going to college. So his parents are like, "Well, you're not going to live here rent free if you're not going to school. So you need to get a job." They're sending him off to uh, Palermo City to work at his aunt's restaurant, I guess. Um, but also in the middle of graduation, I, I should mention, um, the armor that Jaime wears received a signal. And the signal said something about the, the reach were on their way back to Earth. And, you know, they kind of ran out. He, he ran out in the middle of graduation because the armor sort of took over. And then when he's back having a little bit of a graduation get together with his family, that's when Superman shows up and says, look. You need to take a break. You need to handle your business. Stop being Blue Beetle. And this is all because Batman apparently also got that signal and they don't really trust Jaime. So he's not in the best place. Um, there's a lot of interesting 
stories here, but uh, or or ideas for a story that like, can Jaime be trusted? We know he's going to play a role, uh, or he played a role in Dark Crisis because they mention it here. We know he's going to play a role in Lazarus Island coming up. Um, so who is he? Should he be trusted? Again, there's some heavy handedness here. Um, and and it, I don't know, it felt out of place for Superman to be the one going and telling Jaime, hey, you can't be a superhero. You can't try to help. You can't do your best. It doesn't seem very, very like something Superman would really do. So again, I'm just not sure how well it works. Although it's paced very well in the art is, is really dynamic. So your mileage may vary, but uh, it was an uneven start for me. Uh, all right. Up next, we have the debut issue of the Justice Society of America, New Golden Age, written by Jeff Johns. Mikel Yanin does the art, Jordi Villar on colors. And there's uh, some guest art as well by Jerry Ordway, Scott Collins, Steve Lieber, Brandon Peterson, John Kalish, Jordan Boyd, and Brandon Peterson handle the guest colors. Rob Lee does the letters. It just does jump around through time a little bit here and there. And so... That's where you have these guest artists um, that show up when there's flashbacks and and other things that are that are going on. So uh, it, this sort of takes place in the future, but we're not sure if it's the actual future because it, it jumps around again. We have 31 years ago with Bruce kneeling next to the bodies of his um, his parents, and then we have 13 years ago with Catwoman jumping out window and then one year from now we have this baby that a couple people are are talking over and then we have 26 years from now which is when the majority of the uh, story takes place with Huntress leading this new version of uh, the Justice Society and when I say a new version it's not one that you would ever think Um, and that's part of the problem there there are other people who look down on this version of Justice League including Power Girl because again, it was Huntress who put this team together, but it's Solomon Grundy, in addition to Huntress and Power Girl, Solomon Grundy, Gentleman Ghost, Harley Quinn's son, Icicle, um, and what's the other? And Ruby, Ruby Sokop, who is the daughter of the first Red Lantern. So they, these are all villains. Uh, oh, there's also somebody named the Mist, Kyle Knight, who's the Mist. So, um, yeah, these aren't these aren't heroes in, in a lot of ways. And there's an argument between Power Girl and Huntress and with Huntress saying, hey, you know, everybody deserves a second chance. Um, and they're trying to find out where Dr. Fate is, why Dr. Fate is missing. And this is the the Khalid Dr. Fate, not the Kent Nelson Dr. Fate. So once they somehow find out where um, Dr. Fate is, he's he doesn't even say exactly. Um, it just says two days later, they they found Khalid's body stuffed in a sarcophagus. But the thing is that he's mummified, like he's been there for a thousand years, but he's only been missing for two days. So how could that be? Well, we know we've had seen this red-headed villain previously with his uh, leather jacket and uh, that he can somehow control time. And Rocky and I were both speculating that it would, is per Degaton. Um, and while the uh, Justice Society is there, looking at um, Khalid's body, this villain shows up and he takes out the league pretty easily or, or the society, I should say. I always be calling him the league. I know I'm going to screw that up a thousand times, but uh, he uses his manipulation of time to take them out, including Power Girl. Like he manipulates time so that even though he's holding this kryptonite out for only what seems to be a matter of moments, it, he, he's actually exposed it, exposed her to it over a period of years, he ages up um, Huntress. He moves the gentleman ghost back in time so that he's alive again and then kills him. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he manipulates time in a crazy way. So kudos to Jeff Johns for making this guy brutally powerful. Um, and then Selena shows up. Huntress's mom shows up. Catwoman shows up. Um, and, throws what looks to be a glass um, snow globe. So, you know, we've seen the snow globe several times over the last few years. Um, and when Huntress grabs it, she's transported back through time, 18 years from now, one year from now, 1976, 1951. And we, we're seeing these flashbacks 
and she ends up back in the past in 1940 um, in the Justice Society of America headquarters with Johnny Thunder looking over her. Um, and supposedly she needs to go back and save the Justice League, Justice Society before any of this starts to happen. So, again, not sure if this is per Degaton. But whoever it is, is very powerful. The art is gorgeous in this book. It is just beautiful. The colors are amazing. Uh, and I am so intrigued. I've never been that into the Justice Society. I've never read John's first run on the characters. But this feels fresh and new. And you don't need to have read anything that's going on in the main DCU. I think if you've read DC Rebirth, if you've read The Button, if you've read the Jeff John stuff, um, that that's enough. And even if you haven't read any of that, if you just read the flashpoint beyond and then the one shots, I think you'll be right where you need to be in order to understand what's going on. So, um, I really enjoyed it again. Another one of these books where I'm like, man, I really wanted to know Rocky's thoughts on it. I'm sure he would have wanted to do a, a special episode, breaking it all down, but we've just both been so busy that we, uh, we still didn't ever do the the special episode we were supposed to do on uh, the, the the next golden age or the new golden age, like we were planning. So maybe we'll get to that one of these days. Um, because again, there's a lot to unpack in this, uh, in this debut issue. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Batgirls annual, uh, it's Batgirls 2022 annual one is how these, uh, annuals are, are titled, um, same Batgirls you you know and love from the same uh, same creative team that we uh, normally have. So we have Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan doing uh, the writing. Robbie Rodriguez handles the art. Rico Renzi on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Um, the, probably the biggest um, the biggest story point, I guess, or, or the most long lasting thing from this is that um barbara gordon's going to be moving out of the the apartment that these three have been sharing kind of the big studio uh, apartment and moving back into the clock tower so i'll leave steph and cass on their own and, and they're investigating something that's happening in the, the neighborhood of the guy that cass or, or that stephanie has kind of been dating and she meets this strange woman whose cat was stuck in a tree and rescues the cat and the woman gives her a coin and a little later, Steph and Cass are talking and they <laughs> they talk about switching places for some reason. Um, like, you couldn't live my life. Oh, you couldn't hack it as me, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they, <laughs> they flip the coin and it ends up landing on its side, which is obviously a bad omen. And they wake up the next day and yeah, they freaky Friday. They've, they've switched uh, bodies basically. And so they're, they're trying to figure that out while at the same time trying to find out what happened, uh, who killed these neighbors of, uh, of Steph's boyfriend while also trying to figure out what the heck happened to them. And, uh, they talked to Barbara about it and she's surprisingly not that worried about it. Um, and then Shiva Cass's mom shows up and, uh, Steph and Cass's body has to try to convince Shiva that she's actually Cassandra. And meanwhile, Cassandra and Stephanie's body um, gets ambushed. Uh, she gets um, drugged and uh, stuffed in a trunk of a car to be taken somewhere. Um, and we find out the person that's taking her is her dad. Um, so, yeah, the clue master is not exactly... Uh, a good, a good father figure, if you will. So this is all to be continues continued in Batgirl 13. Why this was all shoved in an annual, not really sure, other than to have an annual, because this just feels like a, a continuation of the story that we have been getting in Batgirl. So if you've been enjoying that, you'll probably enjoy this. And I will say, um, you know, I, I run kind of hot and cold on Batgirls a lot of a lot of the time. Sometimes it feels like it's just not for me. Um, and Rocky and I both have talked so many times about the, the style of art that they've chosen. And uh, despite um, th this style of art 
where you're uh, Jorge Corona, where you're putting a bunch of ink splatter over it or, or Neil Gouger, who's, whoever else has done it. It just comes across as juvenile. It always does. Uh, every so far, every single artist they've had on the book, the art just feels juvenile. So this time, and I'm not a big fan of Robbie Rodriguez's style at all, but his style doesn't feel, never feels juvenile to me. Um, and I got to say, I enjoyed this so much more and it felt like it was more aimed at a, a more grown up audience. Um, that it works for me so much better than what we've had in the regular book. So I kind of feel like if from the start, they had just chosen a different artist, like a different style. Um, Cause we've Rocky and I, again, we've talked so many times about how incongruous it feels to have these stories and plot points that are very serious and adult when the art feels so juvenile, it, it just, it doesn't work. It's such a failure of, of putting the right artists on the book. Um, so I hope going forward that we can get, even if it's Robert Rodriguez, again, I'm not the biggest fan of his style, um, but I would take this art over who they've had in the past because um, it, it makes the book feel jokey. Um, it makes it feel less consequential, like there's no stakes um, and here there's stakes. And so I definitely appreciated that. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing 2022 annual number one. Uh, again, there are a, a couple of stories here. The first one gives us the origin of Heartless. Um, and uh, they're both written by Tom Taylor. Uh, let me get to the, the credits. Um, and I, I, I wasn't expecting necessarily to see the origin of Heartless, but it wasn't unwelcome. And in a way, you kind of feel bad for him. And in a way, it's super cringe. Um, what this guy has done, what he's gone through, just how despicable and, and evil he is. So um, that first story, The Origin of Heartless, it's, uh, again, written by Tom Taylor. As I said, Eduardo Pansica is the artist. Julio Ferreira does the inks. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Um, and it leads directly into Nightwing 99. So I'm not going to spoil it. Um, I'll just say that Heartless... He started down the path of being a pretty disgusting, evil, terrible excuse for a human way back when. Um, you know, some people are just born wrong. You know, they're, they're born with some wires crossed or whatever. Um, and, and that was certainly the case with, um, with Heartless and his, he had a terrible father as well. So, you know, if he had one thing or the other, he might have been able to overcome. But both of them together, the the kid had no chance, and it you feel a little bad for him because he really didn't have a chance. But at the same time, there's nothing redeemable about the character, um, and so you know I didn't find myself feeling too much compassion for him, um, and you do kind of want to see him get what's coming to him. But there's a little bit of empathy there, you know. It, he's not. If there's not at least some understandable motivation, then he just becomes a cardboard cutout, like a two-dimensional character where there's no depth there. So I'll give Taylor some some credit for trying to add some depth, but not adding so much that he that he, he stops being completely evil. Like you know, you just want the guy to get what's coming to him. And he's just a really, really bad guy. Um, and, and the origin doesn't give away everything. There's still some mysteries here, but it, uh, it's satisfying in, in what it does tell you. So, uh, the second story is by Jay Kristoff. Eduardo Pensica does the art, uh, pencil art for this one as well. Julio Ferrer on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. Basically tells the story of, uh, Nightwing or Dick. Grayson, I should say, and Barbara Gordon going out on a date and what uh, Haley, what Bitewing thinks about, wow, Dick is gone. Um, and he kind of has this dream that he's fighting crime himself. And then when Dick and Barbara get back, this fighting crime that he's been doing really was him jumping around the apartment, destroying, <laughs> destroying things. Uh, so it was kind of fun. Um and then there's a, a third story written by C.S. Pocket. Anaka Miranda does the uh, pencil art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. 
And it's basically a story about Nightwing training John Kent to fight. Um, John comes to Nightwing and says, yeah, accidentally broke this guy's arm while I was trying to subdue him. Um, so I need you to teach me how to fight so I'll, I'll know how to hold back. And so it's interesting in the context it provides um, to Dick Grayson and the way he was trained by Batman and how he chooses to pass on that legacy to others, but also in who John Kent is, how powerful John Kent is. Um, uh, not to, you know, beat that drum or sound like a broken record again, but um, it's a little bit of John earning his powers. So I did appreciate that, but uh, it, it just, it feels like if he'd gotten a normal chance to grow up, this these are things he would have learned along the way. And I, I would have preferred that as opposed to him having to go to Nightwing to, to find out how to pull his punches and, uh, and not, you know, break people's arms accidentally and, and whatnot. So uh, it is what it is. It was a fun story. Overall, the Nightwing annual was, was really solid. Uh, that origin story that led it off being the, the best of the, of the bunch. Uh, okay. Up next, we have the Detective Comics 2022 annual number one. This is written by Rom V. Christopher Mitten and Raphael Albuquerque with Hayden Sherman are the artists. Lee Luffridge on colors, Darren Bennett on letters. I have mixed feelings about this. Again, it's a very well done comic in terms of technically, um, it's paced well, but we're, we're going back. We're going back to, you know, before Gotham was even Gotham. Um, they call it Gotham, um, spelled slightly different. And, you know, we're back in the, the 1800s, if you will. Um, and, and that, that Gotham is G-A-T-H. O-M-E, um, the city that, you know, would become Gotham uh, eventually. And um, yeah, we're actually way back in 1776, actually, now that I look at it, even before the 1800s, um, when it's still just a settlement. Um, and it, it, we see that the Oregon family has its roots in Gotham way back then. We see somebody who's very similar to Poison Ivy. We see someone who's similar to Batman. We see someone who's similar to Two-Face, and that's what I didn't like about it. This feels like a derivative story, right? Um, so what are you telling me, that that Two-Face and Poison Ivy and, and Batman are all echoes of of characters that existed in the past? I, d- I just don't like that. I just don't. I don't like the idea, okay, so Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered, and he went on his international travels, and he learned everything he needed to learn to be Batman, and then... He couldn't figure out, you know, what was the next step? How do I, how do I fight crime? And, you know, the bat flies through the window and he's inspired and whatever. This, this cheapens that. No, he wasn't, wasn't a bat through the window. It was this, this other guy way back when in the history of Gotham and Gotham and its earliest beginnings that, that dressed like a bat. Um, I just, again, I don't care for it. Poison Ivy way back then. It, it's like, I get it, right? Like you're, you're writing the stories. You're a new writer. You haven't had a chance to write Batman before and you want to put your mark on it and you want to go back in the past and tell this story that's set in the late 1700s and it's um, got its roots in American Revolution and all that kind of thing because it's cool. It's a cool idea. At least you think it is. Um, but again, you, you I feel like when you go back and do this, going back 200 years, 300 years to the past – 250 years, whatever it is, and and have echoes of characters that appear in the future, it, it it doesn't make sense, right? Like how many times, and I've talked about this a lot, how many times is something going to happen in the past that Bruce, who's supposedly, you know, one of the smartest guys in the DC universe, doesn't know about? The Court of Owls hid under his nose for years, decades, decades, uh, and he's supposed to be the world's greatest detective? What? Now are you telling me he's the world's greatest detective, but he didn't know that there was this two, Two-Face analog back then? There was a Batman analog back then? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, I don't, I don't like it. Uh, I don't like that there was a Poison Ivy back then. I don't like that there was a Two-Face. I don't like that there was a Batman. Just tell your story now. You don't need to be throwing this stuff like it. There's no reason for it. I mean, to make it interesting, I guess, because if you're just telling the story of 
orgum family back then, political machinations, it, it's kind of boring. Eh, you're probably right about that. Um, so maybe don't tell that story. Tell a different story. I, I, I don't know. I didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that there are these modern day characters that have analogs in the past. And this isn't Elseworlds. Like this is regular canon. So I don't know. Maybe your mileage may vary, but I, I really dislike this. And again, really wanted Rocky's opinion on it, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I'm not going to talk about any of the story beats or anything in this. Cause honestly, it's not, there's nothing to it. It's a paint by numbers, very generic story. Um, it establishes that the Orgum family tried to take over Gotham, you know, way back then and Batman stopped them, but not really Batman, but the Batman of 1776. Like, yeah, it feels Elseworlds, right? Uh, all right, moving on. Uh, a couple anthologies to go. The first one is DC's holiday special this year, which is called Grifter Got Run Over by a Reindeer, 80 Page Giant. Uh, a lot of stories here. Superman and Wonder Woman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Dog, written by Stephanie Williams. Art is by David Lapham. Colors by Nick Filardi. Letters by Travis Lanham. Uh, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, and Last Christmas, written by Dave Wellgoes. Art by PJ Holden. Colors by Mike Spicer. Letters by Pat Brosso. Harley Quinn and Eight Crazy Nights, written by John Lehman. Art and color by Juan Doe. Letters by Farron Delgado. They have Hawkman and Hawkwoman in Home for the Holidays, written by Kevin Scott. Art is by Fico Osio. Colors by Sebastian Cheng and uh, letters by Josh Reed. Black Canary and John Constantine in Not-So-Silent Night, written by Max Bemis. Art by Pablo M. Collar. Colors by Ivan Placencia and letters by Dave Sharp. Batman in Memories and Forfeits, written by Scott Brian Wilson, art by Skylar Patridge, colors by Romardo, Romulo Fajardo Jr., and letters by DC Hopkins. Animal Man in Do You Hear What I Hear, written by Michael W. Conrad, art by Christopher Mitten, colors by Brennan Wagner, and letters by Becca Carey. And then finally, Grifter in How the Grifter Stole Christmas, written by Derek Friddles, art by Carlos DeAnda and Dustin Wynn, colors by Carrie Starchin and Dustin Wynn, and letters by Wes Abbott. So I'm going to go through them real fast. First story's fun. Um, Superman, Wonder Woman teaming up, and um, this guy thinks he has a, a vision that this R Rudolph-like dog, this dog with glowing red eyes and antlers, is going to... Uh, like ruin Christmas and he, uh, he attacks crypto because he thinks crypto is this, this dog that he saw in his vision. Obviously Superman and wonder woman thwart thwart him and save the day. So it's kind of a fun uh, story. The second story, uh, is Frankenstein agent of shade fighting against this, uh, evil snowman named freezy who he takes on a journey, almost like, a a Christmas Carol type journey and kind of teaches them the value of, uh, of friendship and, and of living. Cause this, uh, this freezy snowman who's only, he's only, he's only around a few months a year and he's very dissatisfied with his life. And in the end, he, um, you know, maybe more than a Christmas Carol, maybe a cross between Christmas Carol and, uh, it's a wonderful life. Right. And he realizes he does want to be around, you know, he's only around a couple months a year, but at least it's at a time where people are happy that they're celebrating the holiday season. So kind of a fun story. The Harley Quinn story, um, the art was great. And Harley Quinn being zany as, for whatever reason, <laughs> the Gotham City is being uh, overtaken by a different reality where um, like holiday things are coming to life and destroying the city, like giant gingerbread man or uh, evil snowman or... Uh, rabid reindeer and then come to find out when harley goes out to investigate she's got her own imp uh <laughs> miss trixelic um and harley basically gives her a copy of this special this dc anthology special grifter got run over by a reindeer and she reads it and learns about like the true values of the holidays and so she dismisses all of her Fifth, then she's not from the fifth dimension. She's from the fifth and a half dimension, I think she says. So she dismisses all that and says, uh, I'll see you later. So I guess uh, 
it's getting pretty cheap to have your own fifth dimensional or fifth and a half dimensional imp uh, these days. So uh, the Hawkman Hawkgirl story is sort of two different stories of these characters uh, reuniting. Um, the art by Fika Osio is really dynamic and really beautiful. And the colors are really beautiful as well. Um, it's nice to see them together. Um, you know, we have two different hot girls right now. We have Shara and we have Kendra. It'd be nice to have a Hawkman book. And we, and we know there's one coming. It's uh, one of the ones that hasn't been announced yet, but I hope it has Hawk woman. Maybe we'll call her Hawk woman instead of Hawk girl. Hawk girl can be Kendra of Hawk woman, Shara and, and Carter or Qatar, whatever you want to call him, Hawkman and have them together. Like it's been a long time since we've had them together. They belong together. And the story is a great reminder of that. So love that Kevin Scott did that. Um, the black canary and John Constantine, not so silent night. Oh man, this thing was rough. Um, it's got so much dialogue. There's hardly any word balloons, but it's just the art is practically covering uh, or the art is practically covered i should say by these dialogue boxes it, it's just it was almost unreadable it was so bad and, and the whole thing is that the premise of the story is dark side it's in the future and dark side has kind of taken over the earth and brainwash everybody so there is no music like whenever anybody goes to sing the only word they can say is dark side so it's like dark side dark side dark side it like that's a not interesting idea as it is. And then when you, and that's how everybody talks. Like the only word anybody can say is dark side. So I, I guess maybe there might be some seed of a story there, but this isn't the way to do it. Because again, there's so much expositional dialogue. It, it's just, it felt like homework. It just was so difficult to read. Um, and it didn't make sense. And I, God, I, I really wish I hadn't read it. I got to be honest. It, it was that bad. Um, so again, another one, I'm real curious to know what, what Rocky has to say about that. Um, the Batman story, memory and forfeits by Skylar, um, uh, uh, by Scott, Brian Wilson and Skylar Patrick is pretty funny. It's basically a, um, uh, 12 days of Christmas story. Each of the days he's Batman's fighting, um, uh, different one of his villains and then come to find out it's these villains are all being set up to be um captured by batman by another one of his classic villains uh, as a gift to him so if you're a batman catwoman fan um you'll definitely enjoy that do you hear what i hear the animal man story there's not much to this one um that's not to say it doesn't have any emotion or feeling because it certainly does. It's the first Christmas that um, Animal Man is spending since his son passed away. Um, and so it's it's pretty poignant for him and his, uh, his family. Uh, and it's a reminder of those that are no longer with us when uh, the holiday season comes around and how, how hard that can be. So I appreciated the lesson from uh, Michael W. Conrad. The last story is uh, it's pretty fun. It's a uh, basically a Wildstorm story. Uh, how the Grifter stole Christmas. Um, the art is is fantastic from Carlos Danda and Dustin Wynn. and it's Grifter being Grifter. You know, he's he's manipulating people and he's being who he is and. Um, it, it just, it's a lot of fun and you get to see a lot of, uh, Wildstorm characters that, uh, you may recognize like Fairchild and Maul and Warblade and Grifter and a bunch of other, uh, characters. So that one was pretty fun, uh, as well. Uh, all right. Speaking of Wildstorm, the last book that we have is another anthology. It's the Wildstorm 30th anniversary special. Again, this is another book that was supposed to be out quite a while ago. Um, but I'm glad it's here now because it was fantastic. Um, there's a death blow story by Brandon Choi. Uh, Jim Lee is the artist, Alex Sinclair on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, there is a Gen X story, generation millennial writer and penciler, J Scott Campbell, Scott Williams handles the inks on that one. Peter Steigerwald does the colors. 
And the letters are by Carlos M. Manguel. Requiem uh, from Warren Ellis. As the writer, Brian Hitch is the penciler. Paul Neary does the inks. Laura Martin on colors and Josh Reed on letters. Uh, the Only Constant by Christos Gage. As the writer, Dustin Wynn, artist Randy Mayer on colors and Seda Temafonte on layers. Backlash Story written and drawn by Brett Booth. Inks by Norm Ratman, Andrew Dollhouse on colors, Travis Lanham on letters. Better Days from Dan Abnett. Neil Gooch handles the art. Carrie Strachan on colors and Wes Abbott on letters. There's a grifter story by Matthew Rosenberg, Stefano Landini on art, Rain Barreto on colors, and Farron Delgado on letters. City Boy and the King of Cities from writer Greg Pak. Minkya Yu uh, Young is the artist. Sonny Gao on colors and Wes Abbott on letters. Building a Better Bomb by Ed Brisson. Mike Anderson does the art. Hi-Fi on colors and Troy Petrie on letters. In Service of None. Uh, by Matthew Rosenberg. Jeff Spokes is the art and colors. Farron Delgado on letters. I Am Stronger by Megan Fitzmartin. Will Conrad on art. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors and Wes Abbott on letters. And finally, Zealots. Joshua Wimson on uh, the writing duties. John Boy Myers does the art. Sebastian Chang on colors and Wes Abbott on letters. Um, there's some great covers here as well from a, a lot of uh, real classic, you know, Wildstorm people. Um, Jim Lee's got a cover. We've got, uh, Brian Hitch on a cover. We've got J. Scott Campbell on a cover. Lee Bermejo, uh, does a cover. Uh, we've also got, who else? Joshua Middleton does a cover. Soya Maki does a cover. So some great covers, a little forward by Jim Lee. And then we get into the main first story, which is uh, a death blow story and, classic Jim Lee art, like from the first page, you know, um, who, who's drawing it. And it's kind of bookends. There's a second, um, death Bowl story I'll get to, but this is kind of almost an origin story in a lot of ways or, or establishing, like, if you don't know who death blow is at all, you can read this and understand who Michael Cray is, which is pretty interesting. Um, but it's a re- relatively short story and, uh, it was enjoyable. And, uh, again, I think, because you have the second death blow story where things kind of get turned on their head. Um, it makes this one a lot more interesting. The generation millennial one by J Scott Campbell. Um, it's just, it's fun. It's uh, you get to see all the old gen 13 members. So if you're a fan of them, they're here, they act like you remember they are, but it's pretty short and kind of jokey. So in that way it works. Um, the Jenny spark story, the one that's uh, written by Brian Hitch uh, with Warren Ellis writing. Uh, again, if you were a fan of the authority from Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch, you will enjoy this. It's kind of a trip down memory lane, but there's not anything new here. Um, so if you are looking for something new, you're not going to find it here. Um, but it is fun to, to look back. I mean, this is a celebration of, of 30 years of, of Wildstorm. So, um, I kind of feel the same way about the, the only constant, uh, from Christos Gage and Dustin Wynn. This is Dustin Wynn handling, um, the pencils, Richard Friend's, Richard Friend inking him as opposed to the watercolor style that he, uh, that he has now. So that was almost the most nostalgic thing for me, seeing Dustin Wynn, uh, kind of the old traditional style of art as opposed to the watercolors he does. Um, but it's Marlowe and it's John Spartan and it's a re- kind of a reminder of, of who the Wildcats were and are and why they did what they did. So um, I did appreciate that. The backlash story felt like uh, Brett Booth never left the character. It's dynamic. Uh, you know, I've talked about him laying out pages in the, the most dynamic way possible. And I stand by that. He is, is a, a, uh, an artist who, Nobody lays out pages in such a dynamic way as him. And some people will say, that's two nineties, but man, that's what was so bombastic and over the top about nineties art. And, uh, and Brett's fantastic at it. So, um, I still, I'm still waiting and Brett's still waiting for his green light to do a, a ongoing backlash story. So, um, the better days story was interesting from Dan Abnett, um, kind of a, an, an almost an end of days story, with um, a lot of the different teams of the uh, Wildstorm universe, be it the Authority or um, Wildcats and how they all need to sort of get along, I guess you'd say. 
Stormwatch as well. But what it bodes for the future, I have no idea. Um, but it does seem to hint at at something. And then uh, we do have the the Grifter story from Matthew Rosenberg. And, you know, we've talked a lot ever since Rosenberg wrote the Grifter story in Batman Urban Legends about what a fantastic handle Matthew Rosenberg has on the character. Um, and that continues here. Um, it's, a, it's a solid Grifter story. It's fun. It's irreverent. And I hope we get more grifter from matthew rosenberg um the city boy and the king of cities we know we're going to get more of this so this is jock hawksmore who can talk to cities um, but even at the end of the story after he's gone up against this other kid who can talk to cities but seems to also have other abilities beyond what jock jack hawksmore can do and he calls himself city boy well it says the adventures of city boy continue in lazarus planet Legends Reborn in January 2023. So he is an Asian character. He's written by Greg Pak. Um, so anytime Greg Pak's writing a character, I'm going to be paying attention and uh, I'm going to be curious to learn more about City Boy and, and what exactly he's up to. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? I mean, he's he's stealing things from the city and the city's trying to stop him and Hawksmore's trying to stop him because that's what the city's asking Hawksmore to do. But this kid, he's like, I'm just I'm just trying to survive. So there's more than meets the eye when it comes to this kid. Um, the next story, which actually is bringing in more elements of the regular DCU, more so than a lot of the others, because um, we get um, Director Bones from the DEO, this Building a Better Bomb by Ed Brisson with art by Mike Henderson, hints at a new type of team, a, a, a new type of authority that will do the things that the justice league haven't been willing to do. So basically this takes place at the time that the justice league is missing, presumed dead. And, you know, director bone says, you know, with all due respect, part of the reason the justice league is dead is because they weren't willing to take the steps that they needed to take. You know, it was a revolving door. Somebody does something wrong. You throw them in Arkham, they escape, you, capture them, you throw them in Blackgate. They escape, you capture them, and it's just rinse and repeat. And so he wants people who are willing to you know, take that next step uh, to the point where they even they even capture something called the Darkness Engine. And when they ask why, Bone says, well, if our intel is correct, once this Dark Engine is fully realized, it will be able to absorb all yellow radiation. So you know what that means, right? Like if Superman were to come back, they can keep Superman's cells from recharging. So interesting to see what's going to happen if we can get more of the story. I mean, it's Ed Brisson. I love Ed Brisson's art or uh, writing. It's fantastic. And at the end, it says to be continued question mark. So I guess we'll see. Next up is that second Michael Cray or Deathblow story that I was talking about. And we're getting kind of a new version of, of Michael Cray, a new version of Deathblow rather than being just him and his body augmented, enhanced, um, immortal, unkillable, however you want to say it. We're now coming to realize that um, the essence of who Michael Cray is, his knowledge as a soldier and his knowledge of tactics and all the experiences on the battlefield and everything he's gone through are saved um, in in this chip in, in a way. And so when one body is worn out, they just put the chip in a new one. And they're thinking it's more like a bloodshot type thing, right? Like you're just transferring nanites. You're just transferring the inherent skills without the personality. But at the end, what um, Jacob Marlowe realizes is that Michael Cray is actually there, right? Um, each time it's transferred from one body to the next, that person's abilities and memories and what have you are, are brought along as well. But they're not a personality that's in control. Cray is the one that's in control. So... It's a fascinating, fascinating way to look at Deathblow. Uh, written by Matthew Rosenberg. Jeff Spokes does a fantastic job on the art. I want more of this so badly. It is, you know, not that Deathblow was ever boring, but he wasn't super interesting either because he felt a little derivative, right? Like kind of Punisher dialed up a little bit with, um, you know, the ability to heal from any wound kind of thing. Take a little bit of Wolverine and mix with uh punisher and that's that's death blow this is something so much more and more interesting to me so uh, i did enjoy it uh the together story megan fitzmartin and um will conrad on art it's a, it's a uh, midnight and apollo story 
and just shows their relationship. The art by Will Conrad is really fantastic, um, but just shows how much these guys care about each other and and how much trauma Apollo is still dealing with from basically being killed on Warworld. Um, and so their story is going to be continued in Dark Crisis on Infinite Earth number seven, according to uh, the end of that story. And then uh, the last story, the Zealots that we have here by um, Joshua Williamson and, and John Boy Myers is basically Zealot and her sister Angel Breaker. Uh, John Boy Myers art is really great here as well. And basically them fighting and hinting at um, a reconciliation and hinting that they may, may be um, looking to train others for some sort of mission where these others are going to get swords as well, because we see several characters from the DCU once the sisters kind of get over their argument and over their own sword fighting um, to take on whatever challenges come next. And the DC people that we see, we see Hawkgirl, we see Katana, we see Cassandra Kane, Batgirl, we see Cheetah. Big Barda, Catwoman, Starfire, and Wonder Woman. So it doesn't say end. It doesn't say to be continued. It doesn't say anything. Um, but it definitely hints at more to come. So I really love this anniversary issue because it started off nostalgic and reminding us of some of the characters of Wildstorm and why we enjoyed them so much back in the day. But then it, as the anthology went along as the anniversary special went along it started incorporating more and more of the dc universe characters the main characters from dcu and uh, a reminder that these wildstorm characters can fit in there dc's tried it so many times and it it's never really taken um probably when they tried it the most was in new 52 and they integrated it Martian manor was part of stormwatch and grifter was uh he had his own book but I think there was somebody else that was um, on a team. It was Justice League International. Um, but anyway, it, it's it's worked with varying degrees of success. But um, one of the things that has been shown with what Matthew Rosenberg has been doing lately is that it, when it's done right, it definitely works. I realize DC has a lot of characters, and I think more than anything, that's what prevents these uh, Stormwatch characters and, and Wildstorm characters from making a lasting impact on the DC universe, but you just have to keep it up. You have to keep incorporating them on a regular basis. You can't let them go away for a while and then come back. That's when it doesn't, doesn't work because it, when you look at the past, DC has integrated other characters. They've integrated characters from quality and from Charlton um, and from Fawcett, but you, you have to keep it up on a regular basis. You got to stick somebody from, the Wildstorm universe on the Justice League and just have them there for you know, a long time, like they did with Blue Beetle, right? Like people don't even realize now that Blue Beetle wasn't originally uh, a DC character. You got to do that with these Wildstorm characters. You need to give them regular titles and you need to keep them uh, showing up on a regular monthly basis and have them tie in, have them show up in crossover events. You can't, you got to make it feel integrated as opposed to feeling separate like it has so many times in the recent past. So uh, anyway, that does it for the episode. That's all the, uh, the issues. Uh, again, apologies, Rocky couldn't make it. Uh, there are a few collections that are out today as well. Superman, the Son of Kal-El, Volume 2, the Rising hardcover is out. Aquaman, a trade paperback, which collects the entire Aquaman series. Uh, World of Krypton, trade paperback, which collects the entire World of Krypton um, mini series and then Superman, the golden age omnibus volume seven is also out. And finally, I'll mention that, um, the blue beetle graduation special or graduation first issue, uh, it comes out, there's an English version and a Spanish version. So if you do speak Spanish or prefer to read in that language, um, again, uh, DC is really leaning into the, the Latin themes here, which is a good thing. Um, I just don't know how well it works, uh, for me. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Appreciate you all listening as always, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Please tell your friends about us. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever platform you use. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also, be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover 
all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. The Comic Source is a member of the LRM Podcast Network, so when you visit the site, be sure to check out some of our other podcasts like Los Fanboys, our official movie and TV podcast hosted by Joseph Jammer Medina, Netflix and Chill hosted by Nick and Carrie, covering a wide variety of film and television topics with Game of Thrones and Star Wars as particular favorites, and finally Mike and Mark's Marvelous Adventures as these two former athletes share their love of sports and geek culture by chatting about anything and everything sports and geek related. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.